Hello everybody, welcome back to another episode of The Casual Criminalist. I, as always, am your host, Simon, and today we're covering the smiley face murders. If you're new here, what happens is, uh, Callum has written me a script, which I have in front of me right now. I have no idea what- I feel vaguely familiar with the smiley face murders, and I think this is probably- I might have watched a video about it in the- it's like one of those names that's familiar, and I have a feeling, just because it's called the smiley face murders, that it's gonna be creepy. Uh, what else? This is a podcast. This is a YouTube show. If you're watching on YouTube, use that like button. I mean, you can watch a bit of video first and then decide if you like it or not, and then use the dislike button if if you feel that's what it deserves. Possible. If you're listening to this podcast, reviews are nice. That would be grand. It helps grow the show, more people to discover it, which is always welcome. I'm doing rather well. I haven't recorded one of these in a couple of weeks because I went on holiday. I crashed my mountain bike. I broke my collarbone. I was in hospital for three days and then I didn't go to work for two days because, well, it was really painful and uncomfortable. But I'm back. Uh, today, the scar, the, the where the stitches are, just itches like crazy. So I'm a little bit like on edge just during the constant bloody itching and the don't scratch it, don't scratch it, don't scratch it because there's uh, 13 stitches in my shoulder, which is awesome. But now I'm a cyborg, which is cool. Anyway, enough rambling. That's not what you're here for. You're here for the smiley face murders. So let's get into it. Oh, sorry, Jen. I forgot you. I'm so sorry. Jen, our video editor, she adds the music. She adds the images if you're watching the video. But if you're if you're listening and you're not seeing the video version, you're missing out on, I'd say, like half of what Jen does. I don't know, Jen. Maybe you spend more time on the images rather than the audio. I don't know. What am I saying? Let's just get into the episode. But thank you, everybody. And thank you, of course, for listening. We've plenty to be afraid of these days. Terrorism, killer viruses, roving gangs of angry English football fans, unlucky lads, and so on and so on. If you're of a nervous disposition, you might want to skip this one because we're preparing to add another piece of paranoia to the pile, the smiley face killers. If you're not familiar with this murderous gang, you're not alone. Oh God, is this another one of those ones where it's like, am I going to upset these people and are they going to come and murder me? <laughs> Sometimes I do wonder about, I listened to a true crime, it was, it was actually a, a car video on YouTube and they were talking about some gang and the guy was like, I'm nervous that I've made this video. Some of these true crime stuff, it's like, oh God, am I going to be targeted by a crazy murderous gang? <laughs> Let's get into it immediately. Their enemies claim that this group of super organized, extremely calculating serial killers have been flying under the radar for decades. Nobody knows who they are or what they look like. Only that they've slaughtered potentially hundreds of victims and made the majority of their crimes look like accidental deaths. This sounds almost like we're veering into conspiracy theory, doesn't it, Callum? In fact, the expertise with which they dispose of the bodies means that some doubt these killers even exist. The only concrete evidence we have of their existence is a calling card found near the crime scenes that connects these seemingly unrelated deaths into one marathon crime spree. Hint, the clue's in the name. Let me guess, it's got a smiley face on it, which is super, super creepy. Today we'll be looking at the story of the detective who believes he first uncovered this network of killers and his decades-long quest to finally haul them out of the shadows. This is the story of the smiley face murders. And trust me, it's darker than it sounds. Uh, it's darker than it sounds. It, it already is. I mean, when you're saying, like, something happy in front of something dark like murder, it instantly makes the happy thing just straight up creepy, doesn't it? The Death of Patrick McNeil 
On February the 16th, 1997, Fordham University student Patrick McNeil went drinking with his friends at his regular, a dive bar in Manhattan called Dapper Dog. When I was younger, I thought that dive bar, because we don't use this phrase in British English, meant like a bar for scuba divers. <laughs> it's not it's it's not what it is. It kind of just means a dumpy bar, right? Like a kind of bit of a bit of a dive we'd use the word dive though which is weird the place was packed out that sunday night mostly with students from the university knew that this was the place to drink yourself paralytic without the bar staff cutting you off or checking your id hell yeah patrick was generally well liked among his peers good looking and intelligent he had aspirations of one day joining the fbi he was also a fairly big athletic guy who could usually handle his drink but that night it seemed as if the cheap booze got the better of him after just a few he was stumbling around like a lightweight freshman I have the feeling that Pat has been drugged. Not long past midnight, he was already ready to call it a night. After forcing himself to be sick in the toilet, he said his slurred goodbyes to his mates and prepared to walk home with a female acquaintance. When she took too long to follow, leaving Patrick shivering out on the street, he decided to head off alone, with that kind of homing pigeon instinct that only the severely inebriated night. Yeah, I mean, <laughs> there's been times where I've been so impressively drunk, it's like, wow, I made it home last night? Good on me! <laughs> Student days. People on the street reported watching Patrick with concern as he stumbled along the pavement, tumbling it over every now and then, before slowly rising to his feet, dusting himself off and walking on. Yeah, I don't think I've been drunk enough to like just randomly fall over several times. I mean, I've definitely fallen over drunk, but not repeatedly. Because after the first time, you would be like, let's just walk a little slower, shall we? <laughs> You're not up to this today, whistleboy. Hardly an, un an uncommon sight when you live near a university, but some of the witnesses noticed something odd. A van seemed to be tailing Patrick, matching his pace and stopping whenever he fell. When he continued up the street and turned left onto 90th Street, that same vehicle turned behind him. That was the last anyone would ever see of Patrick McNeil for quite some time. Over a month later, the 21-year-old was floating face up in the East River, spotted by walkers on a Brooklyn pier, about 12 miles from where he was found. His body was badly decomposed, and the only clothes left on him were his jeans and socks. Up to that point, the police had been absolutely confident that the missing man would turn up on his own. His family's insistence on a proper investigation was treated as an irritation, countered by digging into Patrick's personal life to round up all the reasons he might actively be avoiding the search. Wait, he went missing for like 20 days? How many days was it? Over a month later? I don't know. If I, I've been a university student, and it's like, if my parents or my friends, if I went missing for a month and I wasn't at home and I wasn't at university, I'd be like, dude, I've clearly, I've clearly gone missing. Why would you think that I've voluntarily gone missing? Guys, look for me, please. One detective told the papers that the popular Patrick had gotten multiple women pregnant and he was running away from the stress. Did you just make that up, detective? Like, did, you did an investigation then. But you couldn't do a proper investigation. Why would you look into that or not? At I guess you just didn't. You just made it up, which is really weird. In a similar vein, the manager at the Dapper Dog suggested he was off shooting heroin on the west side. Holy sh**. All of that character assassination looked pretty damn distasteful now that the poor guy's family were being told that their son had fallen into the river and drowned that night. If he really was running away from his responsibilities, then the young guy was apparently willing to go pretty damn far. All of his family's efforts, which included handing out 10,000 flyers with an army of volunteers, were in vain. Now there was just one question left to answer. Did he fall, or was he perhaps pushed? Determining which was the case was the job of top NYPD homicide detective Kevin Gannon. 
Judging by Patrick's unsteady legs, testified to by dozens of bar patrons and pedestrians, it seems likely that he had fallen in by accident, but Gannon and the coroner both agreed that some things just didn't add up. For one, the pooling of blood in the body suggested he had died face down, not face up like he was found, and the fairly unadvanced state of the slippage of his skin suggested that he hadn't actually been in the water for the entire of the two months. Oh, so it's two months. If someone goes missing for two months, even if they're 21 and you it's very strange. If you're not familiar with the ins and outs of human decomposition, slippage, I can guess what slippage means, Callum. It's going to be like the skin gets like just sloughing off the body, right? Slippage means the skin bloating, then literally slipping off the body after death. Try not to think about it too much. Yep, I'm not going to. Let's just move on. So if Patrick wasn't floating in the water all this time, where was he? Well, the postmortem revealed what could have been ligature marks around his wrist and neck. Gannon had a theory that the young man had been kidnapped and held against his will on that night in February, then killed somewhere indoors before being dumped in the river post-mortem. Suddenly, that van crawling down the road behind the victim looked all the more significant. Gannon... <laughs> That wasn't significant in the first place. Someone is disappearing for over a month. No one's looking into it. And there were reports that there was a random van following him while he was going home. And no one's like, this is suspicious. Again, I know this comes up often, but police, what are you up to? Gannon discovered, I know, I know like hindsight's 2020 and stuff, but it really does feel like, I mean, come on guys. Gannon discovered that one of the witnesses actually managed to note down a partial license plate for the vehicle after realizing how strangely the driver was behaving, so the detective applied for authorization to run a search. Why does the detective need authorization to run a search for a number plate? That's how, you should just be able to do that. You're a detective. Didn't getting your detective's badge, or whatever they call it, authorize that kind of automatically? And I know, yes, it opens it up for abuse a little, so the detectives can run their friends' license plates, or people who've parked them in, or whatever. And it's like, yes, but let's just trust the detectives not to abuse it because they're detectives and members of law enforcement. And I know law enforcement are not perfect, but doesn't the lack of bureaucracy and the speeding up of things counter the, isn't that a bigger benefit? I don't know. It feels like it, doesn't it? Uh, so he could find who the owner might be. To his dismay, the request was denied, citing costs. <laughs> How much does it cost? 10 minutes to look it up. It's a computer. The department wasn't convinced that the death was suspicious to approve this relatively inexpensive bit of admin. That was basically the end of the matter. On April the 16th, 1997, the medical examiner officially ruled the death an accident and the case was closed. This sounds so incompetent that it almost sounds like there's someone trying to hide it at the police department, which I imagine is not the case. But I mean, this is sketchy as hell, right? But for Gannon, it would forever remain open. He had befriended the parents along the way, sounds like a mistake, and the mother asked him, please just try to prove that Patrick wasn't just some drunk kid that fell into the river. He told her, I promise you, I give you my word. When I retire, I'll prove that your son wasn't that individual and that he was abducted and murdered. Over the next decade, he would go on to meet many other parents like them whose sons had drowned under what seems like highly suspicious circumstances and deal out the same promise time and time again. He was the only one determined to reveal the truth about what happened to their children. As it turns out, the McNeil case was the first time that Gannon came up against a nemesis that would haunt him for the rest of his days. So where's the smiley face on this guy? Did they, like, I thought there was always like a smiley face thing at the site of all the murders, right? Anyway, let's move on. The Smileys. Sounds like we're about to move on to there, doesn't it?
Gannon turned the McNeil case into a personal project, retiring from the force. His goal was always to have the investigation reopened so that the circumstances of Patrick's disappearance could be properly investigated as a kidnapping. Part and a murder. Definitely a murder, no? Part of the process was looking into the databases of similar cases from around the Northeast USA to see how they compared in terms of physical evidence and official verdicts. Hoping to find a precedent for a fresh look at the case, he actually found something far more disturbing. It seems like there was an epidemic of suspicious drownings around the area, all of which were written off as accidental. My conspiracy bells are ringing. Over the following years, Gannon started collecting notes on further deaths that bore eerie similarities to the swath of suspicious drownings that stacked up on his desk. And here's a list of them. Brian Wellsian, 21, left a New Year's Eve party in Chicago on January the 1st, 2000. Body found 77 days later, 30 miles away in Lake Michigan. Minimal decomposition suggested he wasn't exposed to the elements for long and perhaps died only 36 hours before hitting the water. Next, Todd Gieb, 22 years old, left a party in Muskegon, Michigan on the 25th of June 2005. Body found 22 days later, floating upright, traces of unprescribed antidepressants in his system. Lucas Howman, 21 years old, went missing after drinking with friends at Oktoberfest in Black Cross, Wisconsin in autumn 2006, found three days later in the Mississippi. River. His friend was attacked that night, and a clothing analyst determined that he was only in the water for 3 to 12 hours. These are all super linked. I mean, young guy, leaves a party, uh, gets kidnapped, spends some time somewhere, and then ends up drowned much later, uh, but about the same time apart. There's links. There's li Whoever's deciding whether cases get reopened, if they're like, nah, we're not going to reopen it, uh, who are you and you should be replaced this is just a small selection of dozens of potential leads wait even if it was just these other three that's enough and there are dozens the victims in the cases were almost always young men college students studying in the towns where their bodies were found they tended to be athletic popular and successful in their studies every one of them went missing after drinking with their friends and was later found floating in a body of water their deaths were either declared accidental or unexpected and this is why it's kind of a bummer to be too cool and too successful <laughs> what because it's like there's no real i'm assuming there's no real reason that these guys were killed other than there's some guy who's not as cool not as successful as studying doesn't have all of these friends as these guys i mean just prima facie i'm like it's some jealous person who's like a bit of a loser and he sees all these guys with great lives and it's like i don't know like don't have too great a life <laughs> because otherwise you're gonna get murdered by a psycho i mean yeah brilliant is why i don't know personally <laughs> uh, uh, like while i have a profile online i also tend to keep quite a low profile and tend to think about my privacy quite a lot because there's so many psychos <laughs> that it's like yeah i'm a public person but also a private person because of psychos <laughs> it's not fun don't kill me while compiling his list of cases, Gannon made the acquaintance of another retired detective named Anthony Duarte. He agreed that the McNeil case was highly suspicious and that many of the accidental drowning cases identified by Gannon had indeed been horribly mishandled. The coroner's reports all had eerie similarities to that case from 1997. Bodies found in the water probably after being killed as their lungs didn't always show clear signs of drowning and the state of decomposition was different than you'd expect from a corpse left outside for days or weeks. Yeah, yeah, yeah. The body left in the water that's there for three days is going to look a lot different from the body that's left in the water for three months. It just is. For example, in the 2005 case of Tommy Booth in Pennsylvania, his body was found in a creek behind the bar 14 days after he went missing. 
Well done on the looking for him, guys. It's like, where, where's his body? Oh, it's behind the bar in the little river. You didn't think to look there? No one looked, no one looked in the little river? Weird. What made things extremely suspicious is that the entire area had been searched extensively in the days immediately after the disappearance and no body was found. Was it overlooked because the creek freezed over afterwards, or as his family claims, was it dumped there later? Given all of the other stuff that's going on, I'm going to say it seems extremely likely that unless this is unconnected, which also seems extremely likely, that his body was taken back and dumped there later. Which is crazy because I'm pretty sure one of the rules about crime is don't return to the scene of the crime. I've heard that places. It's famous. Pro tip. Well, the coroner recorded that rigor mortis was detected in several joints, which typically subsides just 20 to 36 hours after death. Add to that the fact that a suspicious pair of footprints were found nearby, and what may have been drag marks found leading to the body, and it seems like the accidental drowning verdict was more of a convenience than anything. Yeah, his, he, he was dumped there later. That seems pretty slammed, you know, slammed door shut or heavy. What's that word? What's that phrase? Slammed shut. Like, locked in. 100%. Why am I so stupid? Who? Who's saying this about you? In other cases, just like with McNeil, the faint suggestion of rope burns on the skin meant it was possible that the victims were tied up before their deaths, and the toxicology report reports shed some light on exactly why the first victim might have gotten so drunk so fast that night in 1997. Traces of the date rape drug GHB showed up in several of the later bodies. As for the others, it's possible that it degraded in the bodies by the time that they were tested. This led to the theory that the men were targeted by people in the bars where they drank, who would slip their slip drugs into their drinks, snatch them off the street, then keep them captive, perhaps to torture them. After that, the victims were strangled and dumped in bodies water to make it seem like a drunken accident thereby cleansing away most of the physical evidence i mean if you're that person who's kidnapping them and killing them and then you're like yeah yeah yeah, the police won't figure out like that the body's not been there for two months but instead only three days and so and you thought that i'd laugh at you and be like you're absolutely gonna be caught because that is the dumbest shit i've ever heard apparently i uh i overestimated the police on this one because that he, he killed a lot of people doing that exact thing and it seems like the dumbest thing in the world <laughs> okay it seemed that the kidnappers often went to lengths to stage the scenes to make them look accidental except there's no water in the lungs and the body looks like it's only been there a little while instead of months we talked about this bodies that have been in the water for months look really different they're all sorts of f up it's much worse for example, when 21-year-old Chris Jenkins was found in the Mississippi River four months after he went missing, he was floating on his back with his arms crossed over his chest. With a long list of cases like this, Gannon and Duarte started looking at the possibility that these were not just isolated incidents. They scoured hundreds of evidence, photos, and reports of all the little incidental deaths from the scenes, looking for some idiosyncratic common thread that might link the crimes together. That's when they discovered that the phantom killer, or killers, had actually left a calling card at the scenes, a tag which marked out their kills and taunted the hapless police. Wait, if this is some really obvious smiley face business card like that's left behind on everybody, uh, every everybody like not everybody but like everybody then this is like the most obvious thing to miss ever other than all the obvious stuff that they already missed <laughs> what is going on
Not a pentagram, not an anarchy symbol, just a simple little smiley face scrawled with spray paint near where the bodies entered the water. Ah, okay, so it's not on the body, it's just nearby. That might seem pretty harmless, but when the investigators started cross-referencing their list of crimes with graffiti reports, the strangely unnerving symbol kept popping up time and time again. Varying in shape and color, sometimes with devil horns or a cryptic message, sometimes not, these calling cards gazed out over the crime scenes with smug little grins. Now, the two detectives were absolutely convinced that these tragic cases weren't only suspicious, they were all the work of one extremely accomplished serial killer. Yet, the fact that all of the things are so similar, though, would immediately make me think it's a serial killer and that it should be more easily investigated. I know, 2020 hindsight and all of that, but 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 come on the theory so what do we have so far well a hell of a lot to be honest Callum. <laughs> suspicious drownings evidence of possible foul play similar victims and a recurring symbol that seems to confirm that a serial killer might be at work this hitherto incognito individual spent their days staking out college bars drugging young men and dumping their bodies in water so far so good. So far, so, so horrific. More like Gallum. But prepare yourself, because Gannon and Duarte took the frameworks of this interesting theory and proceeded to absolutely jump the shark. By the time it hit the mainstream, the smiley face murder theory had come to resemble something straight off the back of a coke-addled screenwriter's bar napkin. Okay, things are already pretty crazy, and it just seems like they're about to get even more crazy, doesn't it? In 2008, two men published a landmark report on their findings, which catapulted the theory to fame in the blogosphere. The book itself sounds pretty dry, case studies in drowning and forensics, but its thesis is more like a thriller novel than an academic textbook. Ostensibly a manual on the proper handling of drowned bodies and aquatic evidence collection, the book actually goes on to argue that the 14 cases could be the work of a highly organized network of serial killers with chapters in several major American cities. The super-organized serial killers that murder college students who drink too much at bars and have good lives? This seems very, uh, like, I mean, normally when you think of, like, serial killer gags, it's like, yeah, 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 we're executing people who are, like, smuggling cocaine or, like, the rivals in the drug cartels or, like, MS-13s up to some shit, or the Ku Klux Klan or whatever. It's not usually like, yeah, 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 what do we do? Well, we murder college students. It doesn't... Skeptical. Skeptical. Let's see if I get persuaded. Gannon explained to Oxygen.com, What we've determined is that they're a well-structured, organized gang with cells in major cities across the United States who drug, abduct, hold the victims for a period of time before they murder them and then place them in the water. When the guys eventually turn up dead, there's usually a smiley face graffiti tag on the nearest man-made structure near the location of disposal. In some instances, it's found in other spots, as was the case with Tommy Booth. The symbol was painted on the back wall of the bar where he was last seen drinking with friends. As for a motive, the detectives believe that these killers are just frustrated losers with no job or friends so they feel the need to target young guys who are doing well in life so that, there's the lesson don't do well in life and you'll avoid being serial killed I, you gotta just take a deep breath mm -hmm. and give up these smiley face killers get a kick out of leaving their trademark tag right out in the open, perhaps as a way of claiming the kills and verifying them with their fellow members. As for how they organized the murders, some of which happened on the same nights, hundreds of miles apart, the gang are said to communicate through the dark web. This is kind of scary now. <laughs> it's like, oh god, there's a gang. Why are they doing this? <sighs> Gannon and Duarte even claim that they once managed to get access to the group's login page, where they were asked through a live chat to enter their credentials and turn on the webcam. It's an unwritten rule of the internet that you don't turn your webcam on for some anonymous creep unless they're willing to pay your rent, so the two men 
obviously refused. The two cops organized a press tour to finally drag this murder gang out into the national spotlight after 10 years of activity, beginning with Patrick McNeil way back in 1997. Many were skeptical, including a Minnesota professor of criminal justice named Lee Gilbertson, but after meeting with the detectives in person, he too became convinced and is now one of its biggest proponents. I mean, okay, so far there's not a lot of evidence for this, just, I mean that there's a gang activity i guess there's some but i'm still like uh, conspiracy a little bit but also it's you know i'm i'm on my way to being persuaded i don't know about you he along with the two original detectives and a third named mike donovan now make up the core of the vigilante investigation squad but if you're planning on walking home alone tonight you'll be very unhappy to hear that they haven't managed to bring down the gang yet in fact, quite the opposite. The Smiley Face Killer investigation is now well past its 20th anniversary without any arrests. That means that the sadistic gang are still at large, potentially expanding their influence further and further as the years go on. Why aren't they? There's enough. Isn't there enough here for the FBI or like someone else to get? So it's yeah. There's a criminal law professor or whoever, and there's three retired detectives working on it. FBI, what are you up to? Come on! <laughs> You're like sending that Silk Road guy to prison forever for like drugs or whatever uh, oh no well and also the the i mean that was all like some dark web stuff but this is like straight murder from like dark web criminal gangs fbi what's up <laughs> seems like seems like this is something to focus on maybe just no fresh cases The bodies didn't stop piling up after 2008, and Gannon and Duarte continued to dedicate their lives to investigating these suspicious drownings. Gannon even remortgaged his own home to fund the team's investigation. He shouldn't have to be doing this, but go government money should be spend on spending on this, really. They were joined by a new army of amateur sleuths who were brought into the theory through online forums. These volunteers spent hours identifying and filing cases that they believe are the work of the smiley face killers. There are 14 cases mentioned in the textbook, only a selection of around 40, the two ex-cops had identified at the time, but now the number of connected cases is well over a hundred. Oh my. In 2019, the team succeeded in bringing their theory to even wider public attention with a six-part TV series on the Oxygen Network, Smiley Face Killers, The Hunt for Justice. Through it, they cover more alleged crimes from as recent as January 2017, the death of Dakota James. He was last spotted on CCTV in downtown Pittsburgh, turning down an alleyway. The official verdict is that then he walked down to a section of the riverside near the Clement Bridge to urinate in the water and ended up falling in, but his parents never accepted this. Dakota was the captain of the swimming team and would surely have been able to get himself out without much of a problem. Instead, he was found 40 days later, floating 10 miles away from where he was last seen. To make matters more suspicious, five weeks before his death, he had been out on a night out with the same group of friends and suddenly found himself on an unfamiliar street, alone and disorientated. If that doesn't sound like him getting drugged, I don't know what does. If you're out and you're having a couple of beer with your beers with your friends and you end up getting absolutely smashed and waking up somewhere where you're like, in the, and you're, then you're like in a street and you just had a couple of beers... Report that to the police, all right? <laughs> he panicked and texted his friend Shelley to come and get him. I don't know where I am. I'm so cold. Please help me. I'm lost. 
he told her through tears. When she eventually found him using his phone's GPS, he was on the bottom floor of a residential building. The dark SUV was parked in the wrong lane, and Dakota was walking straight towards it when she pulled up and shouted him over. He wouldn't explain what had happened to him, only that he had lost about four hours of his memory from 7pm to 11pm. That is terrifying. She asked him if he wanted to go to hospital, thinking he had been drugged or raped. She may well have been right. GHB was later found in the autopsy report, but Dakota just asked to go home and never spoke any more about it. Was the driver of the SUV waiting to kidnap that young guy? And five weeks later, did they succeed on a second attempt? That sounds extremely likely, and why isn't this being investigated properly? This is extremely frustrating. I hope you're as frustrated as I am. Gannon found a piece of evidence which suggested this. A look at the autopsy photographs revealed suspicious marks on the young guy's neck, which had seemingly gone unnoticed. Forensic pathologist Dr. Cyril Wacht concluded the death may have been due to ligature strangulation. Finds like this are why the team are willing to sacrifice so much time and money, locked in a crusade against a hidden menace plaguing the youth of America. If we throw ourselves further down the rabbit hole and follow all of the auxiliary investigations that have popped up online, then the smiley face killers may have already expanded their reach overseas. Websites supporting this case claim that this network of killers have struck more than a staggering 350 times across North America and as far afield as Europe. That means no matter where you are, if you're walking over from a bar alone at night, the smiley face killers might have already marked you out. Every one of us is at risk of becoming their next victim. But hold on a minute. Let's dial down the panic for a second. Sure, Gannon and Duarte have won a handful of victories in their quest for justice, and their work is often extremely important for the desperate families. But does any of that mean that they're right about a bloody dark web murder conspiracy? Surely, I don't need to tell you this, but, well, no, not really. I mean, surely you don't need to tell me this. I don't know, kind of, you spent like the last 20 minutes kind of convincing me from being like, nah, there's no dark web conspiracy to being like, oh my god, there's a dark web conspiracy and I'm going to get murdered by the smiley face dudes. <laughs> oh my god, never going out again, going to stay locked in my house forever because why did i ever decide to do a true crime podcast and scare the shit out of myself twice a week um so I, I i don't know like you just spent a long time convincing me callum so yeah okay make me feel nice and safe now please drowning the smiley face murder theory the believers in the smiley face murders theory are still holding out hope that the FBI might bring in the big guns and take down the gang for good. But they're in for a major letdown, because the truth is the vigilante detectives have already succeeded in bringing these murders to their attention. In 2008, Special Agent Richard J. Kakata issued a statement saying, The vast majority of these instances appear to be alcohol-related drownings. The FBI will continue to work with the local police in the affected areas to provide support as requested. Essentially, some of the top investigative minds in the country have basically already debunked the theory. So, what the hell is really going on here? Well, I imagine there are some, maybe there's, maybe there's like one serial killer who has done some smiley face murders, and then every other suspicious drowning that could halfway be linked is being linked, so that's how it gets up to, and in different countries, and that's how it gets up to 350, uh, would be my speculation or something like that, like a weird mixing of things. But let's carry on. The problem with smileys. We'll start with the smileys. First, a little experiment. If you're currently outside, in a town or a city, do a quick 360 and see if you can't spot some smiley face graffiti. In certain parts of certain towns, you'd probably have taken in about a half dozen of them within that little pirouette. Now, I'm going to be absolutely... 
I'm fairly sure like I'll go home today and I'll see like some smiley face graffiti. I'll be like, oh my God, the smiley face killers. But it's just a coincidence. My point is that smiley face is probably the most common graffiti symbol by far. The only other contender being the classic cock and balls. This one was, yeah, <laughs> penises are more common. <laughs> this was one of a laundry list of criticisms that the Center for Homicide Research lobbed at Gannon and Duarte back in 2012 in an article called Drowning the Smiley Face Murder Theory. Very clever name, guys. They argued that in these drowning cases, you can only ever get an approximate estimate of where the person entered. For obvious reasons, you'll very often find a bridge nearby, absolute hotbeds of graffiti vandalism. In the Jenkins case, there were actually seven within a mile of where the body was found. If we're looking a mile around where the body is, I mean, if it's right next to where the body is, okay. But if it's a mile around, that is a coincidence. I was, my in my mind, they're like painted on the dock. So the body's there and there's a smiley face like right next to it. Not like three blocks away or something. So perhaps these seasoned detectives are actually just on the trail of hundreds of bored teenage vandals. It's not even smiley faces they look for. Gannon and Duarte claim they've identified over a dozen recurring symbols used by the group, so basically any common graffiti will probably do. Consider the fact that when faced with cases that displayed all the same markers bar the petty vandalism, the detectives just claimed the killers arbitrarily decided not to do it on those occasions. So their big brain method is search for graffiti literally anywhere and claim the victim was thrown in there or fail to find any and claim that you're still right anyway. Top detective work, boys. The psychological term for the tendency to see patterns in randomness is apophenia. Well, you learn something new every day. And it's basically to blame for 99% of the batshit true crime theories out there. Yes, and also conspiracy theories. It's We, we love patterns as humans. I mean, the reason, like, like true crime uh, crazy theories and crazy conspiracy theories, same reason you look into the sky and you see, oh, that cloud looks like a rabbit. Same going on fascinatingly essentially if you pick a common enough signifier you can link together all kinds of crimes into one cohesive theory give me a few hours with access to uk police records and i promise you i'll find at least half a dozen public toilet overdoses in which the aforementioned cockerballs were scribbled on the door in permanent market does that mean that brian is being stalked by the cockerballs killers a group of organized murderers picking off addicts up and down the nation Absolutely not. Although, if Oxygen can offer up a six-episode documentary deal, I'm more than willing to run with it anyway. Yes, absolutely, Oxygen. <laughs> the problem with water and college kids. So, if you're satisfied enough that the dark web gang conspiracy has been basically debunked, I mean, I'd say it's a slim possibility. Like, I didn't quite realize how far away the smiley face symbols could be for it to be a link, and now I'm like... Well, you know, it's like the tiger in the bushes. There's probably not a tiger there, but maybe, you know, maybe there is to so just check anyway. That's the, you know, that sort of thing. I mean, if you just claim every drowning death is suspicious, you will eventually get a hit or two. In some cases, the suspicious state of decomposition was undeniable, and there really were what appeared to be binding marks on the victims. As for the other cases, true believers will tell you that the water washed all of this key evidence away. But according to experts on aquatic investigations, this ignores the fact that water can actually have a preservative effect on dead bodies. Whoa, really? So all my talk about, like, yeah, the body in the water is not going to look good. I feel like I've seen enough episodes of, like, CSI or whatever to be like, yeah, yeah, yeah. Bodies don't look, it's like, that's all, that's a bloated mess. It's, it's, what, they're like, liquefaction has occurred. Oh, God. With proper techniques, you can even get fingerprints from the skin of victims who have been underwater for some time, especially when the temperature is low. Wow. Again, you learn something new every day. 
Most of the cases we've mentioned happened in autumn and winter. And speaking of low temperatures, District Attorney Stephen Zapala, who was involved in the Dakota James case, has gone on record saying that time of year with the water temperature, you only have a couple of minutes before you go into shock and that's that. It doesn't matter if you're captain of the swimming team or not, if you're smashed on alcohol and fall into freezing water, you're in real trouble. That would explain why this serial killer gang, in quotes, happens to only target male college students. That demographic tends to drink pretty excessively, walk home alone, and maybe stop off by the water to relieve themselves. <laughs> Truth, isn't it? <laughs> Staggering down an embankment and over the edge is actually far more common than you'd think. Yeah, I'd be like, yeah, yeah, I totally, 100% believe it. And have you ever tried to go swimming while high off your face? If you've tried, you'd soon find out that not all drugs are performance-enhancing. Yeah, I mean, look, I've definitely tried it. Like, I've been drunk on enough beaches to be like, let's go for a swim! And being like, this is immediately a bad idea, let's get out of the water now and never do that again in my life because that's how people drown. <laughs> Don't know how dumb ideas become so clever after you've had, like, seven beers. <laughs> If you try, you'll soon find that not all drugs are performance-enhancing. Aside from its use as the date-rape drug, apparently GHB can also be used to achieve similar effects to MDMA, euphoria, increased sex drive and tranquility, and a similar flip side, loss of consciousness, nausea, hallucination. And that's according to Drugs.com, <laughs> a website which tells it like it is. That means that in at least a few of the 30 cases that this or very similar substances were reportedly confirmed in, the drugs might have been taken willingly and could have contributed to the lack of physical coordination once the victims plunged into the water. For a lot of obvious reasons, that idea doesn't sit right with some of the grieving parents. Surprise, surprise! They quite reasonably want to understand why their sons died in such a senseless and tragic way, even though there's not always an answer to be found. Yes, unfortunately, sometimes... A death is just senseless and tragic, and it's tough to take it in, but it's just, uh, sadly, that's just how it is sometimes. Wrap up. We'll leave the final word to you with the smiley face murder theory. Too wild to be true, or given the nature of people in the internet, somewhat inevitable. Either way, those 100 plus young men did die tragic deaths, leaving behind 100 plus families still desperate for answers that will probably never come. Honestly, I believe that dark web murder gangs will be seen as the new satanic panic when we look back in 20 years' time. It sounds like something my granny would come up with because she's terrified of the internet. Some people call Ganon and Duarte vicious opportunists who are exploiting the grief of parents for clout. But in the end, this conspiracy stuff doesn't detract from the fact that a lot of these deaths are genuinely quite suspicious. If it takes a sensationalist theory to start bringing them to public attention, is that really a bad thing? No, I don't think it is. Ethically dubious, yes but also kind of pragmatic. You could spend far longer than we have today throwing yourself down the rabbit hole of this theory, which we might do in the future to do proper justice to some of the more credible cases. For the vast majority of them, though, it appears like a series of horrible, unrelated accidents. In some way, those everyday tragedies are far more worth worrying about than anything else. So, as the bars start opening back up again this year, we should all keep in mind that friends don't let friends walk home faced or get kidnapped by dark web murder cabals. Stay safe out there. Dismembered Appendices Number 1. Although these smiley face killers probably don't exist, there was one killer who used that symbol as their calling card. From 1992 to 1995, a Wyoming man named Keith Jasperson murdered eight women and sent anonymous letters to the press, which he signed off with a smiley face. This, I think, might be the case that I've heard of. You know, I mentioned at the beginning was the smiley face murderer. 
I feel like it was this. Uh, this one in the nickname The Happy Face Killer. It's definitely this, because that's what I remember. At one point, he claimed to have murdered a staggering 185 victims. Good lord. Appendix 2. While Gannon and Duarte's intentions are more than likely pure, the same can't be said for Hollywood medium Tyler Henry. Ugh, mediums. Who featured Tommy Booth's mother on his TV show in 2019. This celebrity clairvoyant claimed to channel the spirit of the dead young man to basically confirm he was murdered. Imagine taking money from people to act as a ventriloquist for their deceased loved ones. That takes a special kind of scumbag. Yes it does this has been another episode of the casual criminals i missed doing this i was out for a couple of weeks and i, I figured how much fun it's to just sit down with one of these scripts from Callum and just basically read through it and share my thoughts with you guys if you uh if you enjoy the show as i said at the beginning uh, if you're watching on youtube please do leave a like if you're listening to this in its podcast form reviews do really help us rise up the various charts and the various platforms and get this show in front of more people which is fantastic because it's nice when people listen to the things i make so well one thank you and two if you do leave a review double thank you and i'll see you in the next episode 